Hi, everybody. Happy 2024. A quick note before we get started. There's a link in the description for a five-minute community survey. If you could please take it, I'd be really grateful. It's just a few questions asking for feedback about the podcast so I can work to make it even better. Thank you. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind-the-scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with Prakrit Jen, an undergraduate student at UC Berkeley and intern at the California Academy of Sciences Institute for Biodiversity, Science, and Sustainability in San Francisco, California. He's here today to tell me about his paper, published in issue 1185 of Zookies, in which he and his co-authors describe parioroctonous scorpions from the San Joaquin Valley, California. Welcome, Prakrit. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. How did you become interested in scorpions in the first place? So I'd been interested in wildlife since uh, I was very young, like ju- just a, a toddler. Um, but scorpions uh, are something that I became interested in a little bit more recently, around six years ago. Um, I started to focus on scorpions primarily. I found it really fascinating how diverse scorpions were in California and how uh, unknown this diversity was, and also how specialized the scorpions could become on a certain kind of particular habitat. Biogeography is something that I find really interesting, and I, f- I felt like scorpions in California were one of the most interesting groups I could find to study on this because many species are restricted to a single mountain range or a single uh, sand dune, or a single canyon. So the scorpions uh, that you have been working on are in the genus Parioroctonus. What is that genus, and how does that sort of relate to other genera, to other scorpions? So this uh, this scorpion is in the family uh, Vegevidae, which is the most uh, diverse scorpion family in the United States. It, th- this scorpion has its center of diversity in the U.S. and Mexico, And I find it to be a really interesting scorpion family because the scorpions range from very small to fairly large, and they live in all different habitats from rainforest to some of the driest desert regions. Uh, They range in in grasslands and in woodlands and almost every habitat uh, throughout the region. And Sparyoroctonus itself is also a highly diverse genus, the most diverse scorpion genus in the US at the moment. It's closely related to the genus Smyrangurus, which uh, some of my recent genetic work uh, is suggesting is actually probably nested within Barioroctonus. Um, But as far as the relationships between Barioroctonus and the other genera in the family, these still remain a bit unclear uh, and a a lot more genetic work that specializes specifically on this family is going to be needed before uh, we have a full understanding of really what's going on. And when you're sort of keying out a scorpion and you think it might be in this genus, 
what are some of the diagnostic features that might tell you that this is a member of Pariuroctinus? So generally in the field, uh, when I'm working, it's pretty easy to identify the, uh, the scorpions as being a part of this genus just by their general appearance. One of the main features that they have is relatively large eyes for their size. Um, and also some aspects of the shape of their uh, metasoma, which is the part that would be colloquially referred to as the tail, uh, as well as the chelae, which would be colloquially referred to as uh, the pinchers. Um, however, the, the technical diagnosis uh, you would use includes things like the positioning of sensory hairs and spines on the legs and other features such as that. But that's not something that's typically necessary to, to use. I think that in some cases like yours, you can say, oh, I... I know the scorpion because of this and that character in some groups. It's only until you put it under the microscope. Yeah, it's quite interesting how how different identification can be in, in different groups. I think in, in scorpions, at least in the groups of scorpions I work on, it is it is quite convenient uh, that just alt or like some at least easily uh, visible features can be used. Because I know in some groups you, you have no idea what's going on until you bring everything home and look at it under a microscope. Yeah, absolutely. Your specimens were collected in California's San Joaquin Valley, which is home to many, many distinct habitats. Uh, and your new species was collected from an alkali sink habitat. So so what are the alkali sink habitats and why do you think your new species was found there? So alkali sinks are a really interesting habitat. They're something that's only really found in dry regions, especially deserts. And they form in what are known as endorheic basins, which is basically where you have mountains positioned in such a way that uh, water can flow into a valley but can't flow back out of the valley. Um, so uh, what that creates is a kind of lake basin, which might periodically flood in the rainy season, but typically ends up uh, either drying up or at least losing a lot of its water. And along the, especially along the edges of this lake basin, you end up with this really interesting habitat where the soil is very highly saline uh, and has a very high pH due to certain salts being washed down from the mountains and also has a really high clay content in the soil uh, and also uh, has a lot of quite toxic uh, components to the soil, which make it so that only certain very specialized plants are able to survive there. Uh, the salts are, are one of the big challenges, and the plants that can survive there are known as halophytes. Uh, some examples um, for anybody listening who might be interested in plants include things like salt grass um, and iodine bush uh, and uh, seaweed, or uh, uh, in the genera Dischilis, Alanrolfea, and Suaida. Those are some of the big indicator plants in uh, the San Joaquin and Mojave Desert regions. Um, these areas also have a higher moisture content than. Uh, nearby regions. And while we're not entirely sure why Pariorchinus scorpions find these areas to be uh, more beneficial to live in, we think that it might have something to do with the higher moisture content. Perhaps it provides a greater amount of insect life available, or per perhaps it helps prevent them, uh, the scorpions themselves, from drying up. Another possible benefit is that the soil that's very high in clay cracks heavily, especially during the hotter and drier months which allows scorpions to burrow deep into the cracks to escape the daytime heat. Um, and one thing that uh, we've been looking at is the evolutionary history of these species using some, uh, some genetic analysis. And uh, this seems to suggest that a lot of these species might have been part of more broadly distributed species in the past. 
uh, and then gotten relictualized in alkali sinks as uh, the climate warmed and dried uh, during fluctuations over the past, uh, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, and I, I mean, I, this this is something that needs uh, quite a bit more study, but this does seem to suggest that perhaps kind of a more moist habitat in these regions might be what the scorpions are looking for. I really love to line up these questions of uh, species evolution over time with similar questions about the land and the land use history. And for this habitat, um, like similar areas, the, the land has changed a lot over time. Yeah, uh, so the land has changed very dramatically historically uh, in this region after this uh, this region was settled, um, especially uh, due to agriculture was the, the, the main factor here uh, and urbanization to a bit of a lesser extent. Uh, the San Joaquin Valley region is one of the most productive agricultural regions anywhere in the country, and almost the entirety of the flat lowland areas that are suitable for agriculture have been converted for that purpose. And there's there's several benefits to doing agriculture in the soil. Uh, it has kind of a floodplain kind of uh, geography and also gets a lot of water through rivers from the Sierra Nevada, even though the climate uh, in the San Joaquin Valley region specifically is more of a desert type. Um, but this land use has also impacted the natural habitats of the region in many dramatic ways. Of course, through direct habitat loss being the most significant uh, contributor to habitat changes, but also, uh, for example, grazing has been a very uh, has been a very major contributor to habitat changes in this region. Grazing has a number of effects, but that they include things like compaction of the land, and they also help to spread uh, some invasive plant species. And invasive plant species, such as non-native grasses, have uh, become a very major problem in this region, because historically, uh, before uh, the the arrival of Europeans to the region, the area only had um, mostly very, very sparse native grasses and was mostly dominated by species such as wildflowers and other animal uh, little plants. So uh, it never had this sort of thick grass cover. Uh, that we sort of picture when we visit the area now, because uh, that's that's what you see nowadays. But this grass has actually had a lot of detrimental impacts on local species, because it makes it very difficult for them to walk and 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 move around. And the grass also sucks up a lot of water from the soil. Uh, so this actually is leading to a very interesting land management dilemma, where in a lot of ways, grazing can be really damaging to desert ecosystems. It can compact the soil. It can destroy burrows of animals. It can... Uh, spread non-native species, but also something is needed to control the populations of these invasive grasses. Uh, so at, at the moment, this this is kind of a, an interesting topic in conservation in this region. I think it just proves how important and foundational your research is, because someone might not expect that um, the diversity of scorpions uh, or their ecological history might be linked to something like cattle grazing, but in fact, they really are. Yeah, the these scorpions and their, and their habitats, they're connected to all of the different human impacts in the region because everything is happening so close together and so many of the activities are high impact. It's really fascinating. Um, this paper's story starts with an iNaturalist submission um, by a user named Brian Hines in 2021 
For folks who are unfamiliar, iNaturalist is an online citizen science portal where users take pictures of flora and fauna to help each other identify them. And in doing so, they provide a lot of really valuable data to scientists. Um, so can you tell us how you and Brian connected and how you were able to use Brian's images to find this new species? Yeah, so Brian and I had previously met uh, at a conference, or a reptiles conference uh, called Herbfest. Um, and we'd connected a bit there. So later on, uh, I was I was happy to see some of his scorpion observations on iNaturalist. And I immediately realized that one of the pictures that he'd posted, uh, one of the, the individuals from this site in the San Joaquin Valley, did not look familiar at all. And I commented something to th this effect on that observation. Um, from there, Ryan and I discussed it a bit. Uh, he gave me some really helpful tips on access in the region and which areas he thought might be good alternates to check if I were, was not able to find it at the site that he had visited. Uh, and soon after, uh, within a few weeks, I myself headed to the locality uh, to do a bit of sampling and do a bit of looking around and get an idea of what was going on. So what did you do when you found these areas that you thought the scorpion might be in? And, and how do you collect scorpions in general? So scorpions most often are collected by UV light. Um, for those unfamiliar, a UV light makes almost all scorpion species glow a very bright greenish-blue color. So at night, walking around with an ultraviolet light can make it really easy to find scorpion species as long as they're active on that day. Generally, on days where there's uh, less moonlight and relatively warm temperatures, scorpion species can be active. Of course, there's some variation with species having particular preferences, but these are the general conditions that work for most species. Um, however, at the site that we were at, uh, there's also a lot of rubble and a lot of trash that has been dumped. Uh, so removing the pieces of trash uh, and looking underneath them is also a fairly good way of finding these scorpions. So a lot of the scorpions we collected from the very first locality that we found these scorpions in uh, were under those kind of pieces of trash. We actually looked at many localities in the vicinity, probably around 10 other localities, trying to find any alternate site that this scorpion could be found in. Because this first locality is tiny. It's like four acres in size. It's covered in trash. It's kind of horrible. Uh, but we weren't able to find anything. We were really worried that the scorpion was about to go extinct until finally, more than a year later, on a completely ra other random sampling trip, I had spotted some good habitat uh, outside my car window. And I was like, yeah, I'll take a look at this. Um, and... Uh, was able to find another population of the scorpions uh, quite a while uh, to the to the southeast. Um, and then finally, several months later again, on a different trip, I, I had found another patch of habitat that I thought looked interesting. And I was able to uh, find some final localities for the scorpion all the way in the most southern extent of the San Joaquin Valley near Bakersfield. And you're hand collecting these specimens? Uh, yeah, in in all these cases, uh, either me or me and a few co-authors uh, had gone out and uh, pretty much, yeah, we blacklight uh, for the scorpion and then we'll collect them in little sauce cups, take them home and photograph them, and then uh, eventually end up using them for whatever research purpose that they're meant for. So I guess I should have asked you, they're, they're sauce cup size, they're pretty small? Yeah, these are pretty small. The total body length of the scorpion uh, is about five centimeters. Um, but with their tail folded up, they're they're quite 
they're uh, quite like a moderate size. What was it like to go collect these scorpions? Um, it was it was quite fun. Field work is always my favorite part of working on scorpions. I really enjoy trying to figure out how they're living in their habitat and what uh, requirements might be important to them. Um, although I will say that in the, the San Joaquin Valley region, field work looks quite a bit different. When I'm out in the Mojave Desert, for example, there's nobody there. The place is, is enormous and it's all public land and it's very it's very relaxed. But in the San Joaquin Valley, I'm constantly having to deal with issues of like land permission and landowners who don't want me to not only be on their land, but be anywhere near their land. Um, so that, that, that tends to be kind of a constant issue in, in that region, always being confronted by people who are really upset that, uh, because they think that you're some sort of threat, I guess, near their land. That sounds like it would really interfere with your research and also just be a really unpleasant experience. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the people I've met have also been really friendly, but there's always a, a certain population who, uh, can make it kind of scary to work in in some of these kind of areas. Do you have any advice for uh, scientists who may be in a similar situation? I, I think working with the people who are living in the region where you're doing your research is always a good idea and trying to find ways that they might be uh, more receptive to your work uh, can often be difficult, but I think is often uh, quite a good idea as well. As far as the field work itself and and perhaps uh, not not getting in, in too much issue. Hiver's vests work pretty well. I think they add an air of authority. I think uh, uh, maybe more than that, they make it look like you're not trying to sneak around or not trying to steal something. Like, you know, you're, you're not trying to get up to anything you're not supposed to be doing. That's a really good point. So you began telling us a little bit about the scorpions. Um, what else do they look like? And when you looked at the iNaturalist record, you knew it looked different. When you saw the scorpion in the field, did you know it was a new species? Yeah, uh, so pretty much as soon as I saw the, the scorpion, not even in person, but just on the iNaturalist record, I was pretty sure that this was going to be a new species. Uh, and after collecting it and examining it, that was further confirmed. So... Uh, to describe these scorpions in a bit more detail, they have kind of a yellowish to orangish base color. The further north you go in their range, the more yellowish to whitish they begin to get. The further south you go, the more darker orange they begin to get. The The carapace, which is the main plate in the front where the eyes are, it's essentially plain. Sometimes there's a few dark markings, uh, especially in the furthest north extent of the species range. Um, but nothing like some of the other Baryochnus species, such as Baryochnus sylvestri or Boreas. Um, and then the body, the main body, with the segments known as turgites, they're darker in color, and then they have kind of a light band on the posterior edge of each segment. Uh, the chelae are fairly robust um, for for Baryochnus. They're pretty uh, similar, pretty typical of what you would see in other species that live in alkali sink environments. Um, and then a similar thing is, is true with their metasoma and with their legs. Their metasoma is uh, relatively stout for a Baryochnus species, and their legs also are fairly robust. Um, and a lot of these features actually uh, do have some relation to their ecology. In this case, the legs are the, the part that might be easiest to discuss, 
uh, generally speaking, species that live in sandier habitats uh, oftentimes have longer or thinner legs with a lot of very fine setae uh, on them, which help them to dig in the sand and make their burrows there. Uh, versus species that often burrow in clay type environments uh, often have more robust legs with fewer setae on them, which can be more helpful in burrowing in uh, harder clay kind of environments. I'm really fascinated by morphology like that. Um, I think that's really cool. So you used the morphology to determine that this was a new species, and you also used a little bit of genetic analysis. Can you talk about that too? Yeah, so um, before publishing the scorpion, we did do some genetic analysis so that we could be confident that this was, in fact, distinct from other lineages. Uh, however, the phylogenetic tree was in no shape to be published. Uh, this this genus is honestly kind of a huge mess, and it's something that I'm trying to work on resolving at the moment, but uh, that was well beyond the scope of this paper. We were hoping to get this paper out relatively quickly because of how endangered this scorpion is, so that uh, pro um, the process of getting it some kind of protection could be fast-tracked. So the genetics that are published in this paper are just a haplotype network of this species itself, to show how its genetic signature changes across its range. Can you explain haplotype networks? Uh, yeah, so basically the haplotypes are referring to certain genetic variants uh, that are found in this species. And uh, in our case, looking at the haplotype network, it was helpful for us to understand the population structure of this species by understanding which genetic variants were found at which localities. And what we found was that the really tiny locality at the northern extent of the species range, the first one that Brian Hines found, had an almost identical genetic signature. Uh, actually, uh, it had an exactly identical genetic signature to certain individuals uh, in the gene that we were looking at, to specimens from the central localities that were quite a long distance to the southeast. Um, so we found that kind of interesting. And we also found it kind of interesting that the populations that were at the southern extent of the species range, there's there's two localities that we sampled there, and they're relatively close to each other, but they're actually like quite divergent. So this brings up some interesting thoughts about the biogeography of the species, about why localities that are close together at the southern extent of the range can be much, much more genetically different than localities that are far apart uh, further north in the species range. It sounds like you have a lot more work to do. Yeah, lots of lots of interesting questions to answer about the species. Where are your types deposited? The types we have are deposited at the California Academy of Sciences. Um, it has one of the largest scorpion collections uh, anywhere in the world, especially of North American uh, scorpion species. And it's kind of a hub for the study of a lot of these groups. So we found it to be quite a good locality to deposit uh, the, the type series. And you and your co-authors named the scorpion Tulare, presumably after the Tulare Basin. Can you tell us about that decision? Yeah, so um, I often find that for these kind of species that are very restricted to a certain habitat or certain region, naming them after the region they're, they're found can be quite helpful. Um, and in this case, I also wanted to bring attention to uh, the specific region that they live in. This uh, Dalar Basin is a very highly endangered habitat, and it's also very unique. 
the this uh, Jular Basin is part of the San Joaquin Desert region, which is uh, one of another desert region in the southwestern United States, but it never gets the same sort of attention uh, as deserts such as the Mojave or Great Basin or Sonoran do, even though it's quite interesting and it has a lot of species that are similar, but just a little bit different to species from the nearby Mojave Desert because it is completely isolated. Yeah, there's a high number of endemic species and almost everything that lives there is highly endangered because of the amount of land use change that has occurred through agriculture, urbanization, grazing, petroleum extraction, and all of the other kind of activities that have gone on in the region. Yeah, that, that that's kind of what we find interesting here. And that sort of leads into my last question. Why do you think that describing this new species is important and why does your new species matter? Uh, so this this region, uh, the the Tulare Basin, and b- more broadly the San Joaquin Valley, is under threat from a variety of uh, different sources, and it has a very uncertain future. Uh, for example, it is undergoing water shortages. Uh, it's facing extreme heat with climate change. It has a really big issue with pollution. It's faced really major land subsidence through groundwater over extraction. In some places, the ground has dropped by as much as 25 feet. It's faced a lot of heavy habitat destruction. And in many ways, a lot of the ecosystems uh, in the region have already collapsed or on the verge of collapse. And studies in a variety of different groups, such as insects and reptiles, have uh, repeatedly shown dramatic population declines in a lot of species, uh, as well as, of course, major issues to the people living there and to the people farming there. Um, So I think this kind of underscores the need to try to understand the the ecological structure of this this region and figure out, you know, how does this ecosystem work? How can this ecosystem be managed sustainably? How can this ecosystem be understood? And uh, the scorpion, you know, it's it's a small piece in that puzzle. But one of the things that I tried to prioritize, um, my co-authors and I, when we were working on this uh, description, was trying to describe the scorpion in the context of its habitat. Because the scorpion species, like its description itself, n- that nobody cares all that much outside of scorpion experts about the details of the morphology of the species. I find it interesting, but I'm sure that most people don't find it nearly as interesting. But what's interesting here is what role the scorpion has in its environment. How does it interact with the other species around it? And also, why does it live in the place it does? Because, you know, if it is restricted to this certain kind of habitat, there must be something very unique about this habitat that has led to this species evolving there. It probably means that there's other unique things living there, maybe other unique things that have not yet been discovered. Um, so this also helps to both launch research in this region and also provide conservation to this region. Because if the scorpion can get conservation attention, then it doesn't just save the scorpion, it saves everything that lives alongside it. And that might be thousands of different species. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what you and your co-authors do next. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I've learned a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. Oh, good. Prakrit Jen's paper, A New Species of Alkali Sink, Pararoctonus, from California's San Joaquin Valley, is in issue 1185 of Zookeys. See the episode details for an open access link to the paper. To learn more about Prakrit and his work, you can follow him on Instagram at B-O-T-H 
R-O-P-S underscore et underscore all. Or you can connect with him on iNaturalist by searching his handle at P-R-A-K-R-I-T. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespod. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com.